we see the uh, kingdoms of Sodom and Gomorrah get absolutely humiliated and defeated, and those kingdoms uh, which Lot was residing in end up being taken uh, captive, including Lot, and Abram kind of, you know, girds up his loins, grabs his swords, charges out to battle, wins Lot back, wins the battle, comes back victorious, and is a good image of what it means to be brave, what it means to go out and take risks. And so it was really uh, quite amazing seeing the story of Abram. Uh, but we are now going to kind of hear the end of that story. Last week, we didn't really deal with it. And we kind of missed out on this guy named Melchizedek. And uh, we may as well just read it right now. So we're going to be in that last section of Genesis 14, verses 17 till the end. So let's read together. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaver, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anna, Eshol and Mamre take their share. So in this very short passage, you guys are probably not used to going through just a short little snippet of Genesis, um, but we have two kings presented before Abram and uh, both walk away from the encounter with Abram, having received from him, having gotten things from him. Uh, but, but immediately off the bat, we see some differences between these kings. These kings are very different individual. We have uh, the king of Sodom, this guy named Berah, if you remember from last week, uh, and he came bearing nothing but a request for Abram. And we also have the king of Salem, Melchizedek, and he brings gifts of bread and wine. And these kings are nothing alike. You could perhaps say these guys are polar opposites. Indeed, they are. Melchizedek's name literally means king of righteousness. That's his name. What a, what a cool name. I mean, I don't know if I'd want it for myself, kind of, but yeah, I think it's fairly interesting. And he was also a priest. A priest of the Most High God. Whereas Berah, he was kind of renowned as the king of Sodom. And if you know what the word Sodom means, you know what they were famous for. He was renowned as a great sinner against the Lord. This is King Berah. Two very different kings presented before Abram. And so we're going to look at these two different kings. I've kind of got three uh, kind of... Out, in my outline, the points I'm going to make, the first one is that we're going to look at the king of wickedness. Number two, we're going to look at the king of peace. And number three, we're going to look at the king of heaven and earth. So three kings we're going to look at today. The king of wickedness, the king of peace, and the king of heaven and earth. So first up, the king of uh, wickedness, Berah, the king of Sodom. He's defeated. 
He's just been defeated in battle. He has fled battle. He's been humiliated in front of uh, the rest of these kings. And he knows he's not in a good position to bring to the negotiation table, right? He's defeated. And as far as the rules of engagement go in the ancient world, everything that Abram has won, all of uh, Sodom's possessions and people, by right, they're his now. He liberated them. He can take them. They're his. He won it fair and square. Abram didn't just liberate Lot and all the possessions of Lot. He liberated all the possessions of Sodom as well that were taken. And so Bera's in this precarious position at the negotiation table. He hasn't got much. He doesn't bring anything with him. He probably doesn't have anything to bring, except maybe the clothes on his back. And he comes to Abram in verse 21. He says, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. He knows the chances of getting everything back is relatively slim. In fact, the chances of getting the people back is relatively slim. But he goes uh, and he has a crack at it anyway. He doesn't want any of his possessions back because perhaps Abram would have mercy on him. Perhaps Abram would give him his people back and they wouldn't be taken as slaves. And this way, perhaps the king of Sodom wouldn't leave empty-handed. This is his plan. This is his grand negotiation strategy. And it's the king's lucky day right? Because Abram wants none of his stuff. He doesn't want even a single uh, strap, sandal strap or thread from him. It says uh, verse 22, but Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap of anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Abram doesn't want anything to do with Sodom. Not at all. He has the knowledge and wherewithal to know that this is not a good idea to keep all the possessions of Sodom. There is a myriad of reasons for why doing this wouldn't be a good idea. Firstly, the people were great sinners against God. And Abram is trying to start this God-honoring culture within his people who once were pagans and have now come to faith in the Most High God to bring all of the people from Sodom into his camp may have ended up destroying the culture that he was striving to establish. Secondly, if Lot was going to return to Sodom, which he would do, that'd be quite problematic for him, right? If, if everyone in the town knows that your brother or your sister or your niece or your nephew or your mother or your father were over there with Abram, kept against their will, and then Lot, his nephew, is there with you, you know, that's a bit of a problem for Lot, wouldn't it? If he was going back. And if Abram gives it all back. He could preserve the culture of his people. He could make the Sodomites view Lot favorably. A lot of good reasons why he would give it back. It would make Abram seem this kind of benevolent figure whose name is kind of just finally made famous in this area. Uh, but notice, Abram isn't concerned about either of those things. He doesn't care about either of those. He's primarily concerned about reputation. He realizes that if he keeps all the people and possessions of Sodom, Berah would be able to say, I have made Abram rich. That's what he could say. Why is that a problem? Well, Abram doesn't want to be known as a man who got rich through the Sodomites. He doesn't want his reputation tied to the city of Sodom. Perhaps the, uh, the rumor was spread that Abram saw the opportunity to take all the possessions and kind of what was an excuse to go and grab everything back. It's quite problematic. 
But if people began to say that Abram got rich by taking all the possessions from the Sodomites, they'll forget who actually gave him all of that. Who gave Abram the victory? Who handed all of Abram's enemies into his hand? Who was that? It was God. God did this. Abram has the theological awareness to realize that it was God who made him rich. In fact, moments before, Melchizedek made that very clear. God has given you victory over your enemies. This was by God. He didn't want Sodom getting any of the credit. Not at all. He doesn't want anything from Sodom, not even a measly thread or a sandal strap. He doesn't want to give Bera the chance to claim that all the glory that was rightfully God's was actually his. And what, I, what you can note here when you're just reading this is just how disrespectful Abram is to the king here, isn't he? Quite disparaging, in fact. He doesn't, want, he doesn't even want to be associated with all. It's like having the king in his mere presence is enough to kind of disgust him. He made an oath. In fact, he says that he, it says Abram lifted his hand to the Lord. That's a way of making an oath. That's a way of saying this is what's going to happen. And he makes an oath. And he pledged before God that he wasn't going to take anything. And what I find amazing then is that Lot goes back. Lot is back in Sodom. He's probably riding on this. Uh, everyone in Sodom probably would love him after that. Oh, he's, you know, his uncle Abram came and liberated and got all their stuff back and won all the people back. Everyone would think Lot was a king. And so Lot goes back to Sodom. He thought he was going to be welcomed back as a hero. And it kind of highlights, once again, the foolishness of Lot. I know Lot doesn't show up in this passage, but it's amazing that he goes back. And if you know the story, very foolish to go back. But Abram adds a couple of caveats to what he's talking to the king bearer. He says, oh, by the way, I can't give you back what my young men ate. I can't give you back what we've already eaten. It's a big, long journey all the way. They were at Hobart, north of um, Damascus, that's a decent journey to get down to Salem where they are now. They ate some of the food that they took. He's like, I can't give you that back, unfortunately. And he says, oh, also, I have some allies, Anna, Eshol, Mamre. They can take what they want. I'm not in charge of those guys. They can take whatever they want, but I will not take anything from you. As for Abram and his household, he wouldn't take nothing except for what they'd already eaten. Take everything, Bera, go home. This is what this is what Abram's saying. I want nothing to do with you. I want no association with you. There's a lot wrong with the city of Sodom. We, in fact, we're going to be reading a lot more, and it's a lot more than simply what that word connotates. But we've got some good news here. Melchizedek, one of the strangest figures in the Bible. And we're going to, that's our, our second point, the king of peace. Because that's what the word Salem means. You may, have, you may know the Hebrew word shalom, right? That's the same, uh, the same word we see here, Salem, um, in, uh, in Hebrew. And so we're looking at, that's my second point, the king of peace. And it turns out that there are other people in the ancient world at this time who worshipped the Most High God. There were other people around. It wasn't just Abram. Abram's not the only one in this world that knows God and know, knows who he is. And uh, he only shows up here for three verses, this guy Melchizedek. Very fascinating guy. It's, it's so bizarre because we never see him again, and yet he's quoted by David. There's entire chapters of the New Testament devoted to this guy, Melchizedek. And you might be thinking, 
It's, it's just three verses. What is going on? Why is this guy such an important figure? Who is he? Why do we only see him here? Well, let's have a read. Let's refresh our memories. Verse 18. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Very interesting verses. And here's what we can see about him in the text. As I said before, his name means king of righteousness. Great name. Great name. He's the king of Salem, the king of peace. So we already see he's kind of got righteousness. He's got peace. All these words create a sense of meaning to us. Uh, And Salem, you may see as the ending of another city. Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem is the same city as Salem. It's at this point, this small, obscure town in, uh, on the top of this enormous mountain, Salem. Um, and we know Jerusalem as kind of this figurative city of God. All throughout uh, the Bible, we see Jerusalem held up as the mountain on which God reigns from, that he rules from, where his temple was built. Jerusalem is the city of God. In fact, you get to the book of Revelation right at the end and we see new Jerusalem descending from heaven, like a bride adorned for her husband. Jerusalem is an important city and this is the first time we see it. And who is ruling it but Melchizedek? Very interesting. This guy Melchizedek is going to be a really important figure in the grand scheme of redemption. And yet we see so little about him in the text. Very interesting. The writer of Hebrews notes that Melchizedek is presented before us without having any origin. Uh, John Calvin says as if he just dropped from the clouds. It's very interesting how Melchizedek kind of just gets plonked into the story. His death is not mentioned in the story and we never hear from him or see him again. Some have even gone so far to say that Melchizedek is kind of a pre-incarnate Christ. It's called a Christophany, if you guys know what that means, but it's basically an appearance of Christ um, before Jesus was incarnated, um, you know, during his ministry. I don't think that interpretation really holds much water. I don't, I don't agree with that. I think Melchizedek was a real man. I think he was a Canaanite king-priest who's a worshipper of the one true God. But the key thing I want you guys to note with Melchizedek is this combination of king and priest. King and priest. Very important combination. Jumping ahead to the Levitical law, it was forbidden for those officers to be blended. It's kind of this idea of separation of, you know, church and state, I guess some people would say, where the king could not hold the office of a priest. The king could not get involved with the worship of God. And likewise, a priest had no business ruling the nation. There's this distinction between politics and religion within this. Not that they are completely separate spheres. They're blended in many different ways, but no one person could hold both offices. And so in the Levitical law, that wasn't wasn't a thing. You couldn't do that. There were two completely different spheres. In fact, there's this guy named Uzziah, And he tried to offer incense on the altar in the temple. And the priest basically kind of got in front of him and said, don't do it. It's going to be bad. And he's like, 
who do you guys think you are? He got angry at them. And then in that moment, he got struck with leprosy. This is something that God takes very seriously. You can read about it in 2 Chronicles. But there was nothing worthy of noting about Melchizedek except this blending of king and priest. Because that actually will become really important. And here, Abram, honoring this royal priesthood that existed long before the Levitical priesthood, is setting up something that's really important for Jesus. We also see Abram giving a tithe to this man. Now, this is massive. This is a huge offering that Abram is giving to Melchizedek. A tenth of everything he owns. That's what a tithe means, a tenth. One-tenth of all of Abram's wealth was given over to Melchizedek. He pays a tithe to him. And this event is recorded for us by Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because this is where we see the first tithe. And this is where tithing comes into existence. It was Abram giving to God, in a sense, via Melchizedek for the victory he had just won. By blessing Melchizedek with the tithe, he was giving to God. This is what we see here. He was giving to God. And it set a pattern in the Bible because the Levitical priests are based heavily on Melchizedek. In fact, the, the priests who carried out the work of God in the temple were to receive a tithe, a tenth, from all the people of Israel. And this was seen as giving to God, to the work of God within their kingdom. It was really important. And in the church, the people of God likewise support those who labor in preaching and teaching the word of God. And the tithe is God's established way of giving to him. This is where we see the tithe kind of come in uh, to existence. But this is not for God's own sake. God doesn't need that money. The passage is clear. God is the possessor of heaven and earth. He doesn't need you to give anything to him. All wealth already belongs to him. All things belong to him. He didn't need the tenth that Abram is offering Melchizedek. Everything already is his. So why do we have this tithe? Well, ultimately, this tithe, which begins here and sets a pattern throughout the whole Bible, is ultimately for us. It is for us. We see that uh, by rejecting the possessions of Sodom and giving a tenth to Melchizedek, Abram is beginning to see the importance of God above all else. This is what we see. This is kind of a pattern that's true for us too. If we, if we think about it and we consider it, for those of us here that know Jesus and we believe in Jesus, the more we come close to God, the less entangled and ensnared we are by wealth and comfort and pleasure. The closer you get to God, the less those things seem desirable, seem like things we want. The more we learn of God and His character, the more we grow to love Him, the more we value God's input, the less we are concerned about worldly things, the less we are concerned about wealth and the things of this world. These things seem to shrink to the periphery as we begin to seek a life worthy lived for Him rather than a life lived for ourselves. And you look at Abram. We started in Genesis 12. You remember I don't know, maybe a month, month and a half ago, we started off with Abram and we have seen a huge gradual change in this man. 
It wasn't just this moment God called him, he's a perfect guy now. No, this is a work of God within him. And now Abram is changing from Genesis 12 till now the end of Genesis 14. And he's starting to learn the joy and the peace that comes from following God. His wealth, which I imagine is important to him, he was willing to give up a tenth of it to this guy named Melchizedek. Because his wealth was not as important as God. And this story that begins with Abram rescuing Lot now ends with one of the most important kind of patterns or models or figures of Jesus. Melchizedek is sort of this forerunner for Jesus. He's this figure that points us to Jesus. And this brings me to my third point, the king of heaven and earth. Now, it's obvious reading about Melchizedek that he speaks beyond himself to a greater reality. We're introduced to him as this king priest, the king of righteousness, his name literally means. From the city of Salem, a lot of, a lot of things are starting to come together with him, and then he offers wine and bread as refreshments. This immediately should cause us to pay close attention to what is going on here, because Melchizedek is starting to sound a lot like another figure in the Bible. Now, what we see throughout the Bible, it's really important to know this, when we look through the Bibles, we see glimpses and shadows of Christ within multiple figures within the Bible. And Melchizedek is one of them. We're not saying that you can read Melchizedek and then out of that, you can come to Jesus. Obviously, that's not how it works. But with a knowledge of Jesus already, right, we come to the New Testament, the Old Testament suddenly just opens up to us. Because when we want to see that Jesus is the Messiah, we see him almost on every page of the Bible. And this is what God has done so that we can know that Jesus is true. This is what God has done so that we can know that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. And so we see Melchizedek, this king priest, the earliest figure we know of to hold these two offices. And the Bible constantly refer references Melchizedek as this model and pattern for Christ. I'm going to show you some of them. The New Testament quotes Psalm 110 more than any other passage in the Old Testament. The New Testament loves Psalm 110. Well, you won't believe who shows up in Psalm 110, verse 4. Our boy Melchizedek. Let's read it. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we're not going to go through the whole Psalm 110, but it's a fascinating psalm. The first stanza of the psalm is about a divine word making a king. The second stanza, the last half of the psalm, is about a divine oath making a priest. And it's clear in both of these examples that we're talking about the same guy. So all of a sudden, we've got a priest king again. This priest king kind of shows up again, and this is King David looking forward to the Messiah. This is a bona fide messianic psalm. This is speaking about the Messiah that is to come. Fascinating psalm. And you might think, okay, that's interesting, but why is this a big deal? Why are we even talking about this? Well, according to the law, no king of David could be a priest because everyone who was a descendant of David was from what tribe? Judah. Which tribe were the priests? Levi. No Judahite could be a priest. It was only the Levites that could be. 
We already know what happened to Uzziah, one of the kings of David, uh, sorry, the sons of David. He was a literal descendant of David from the tribe of Judah. He got leprosy for trying to perform the role of priest. And when the writer of Hebrew calls Jesus the great high priest who offered himself as a sacrifice for sin, Jews who were around at the time rightly saw a problem. They rightly went, hang on a minute, he's from the tribe of Judah. He can't be a priest. He can't be a king. Only the tribe of Judah could be priests. And then the question naturally arises, is the Bible even consistent? Is God a liar? And remember that the early Christians were trying to convince the rest of the Jewish society that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. This is a big deal. We might not think it is a big deal. If we don't come from a Jewish background and we're not concerned about these different things, I could tell you, oh, Jesus is a king priest. And you guys would be like, oh yeah, checks out. Seems, seems legit. But if you're from a Jewish background, you'd be thinking, ah, that doesn't make any sense. How does that even happen? Well, obviously God does not contradict himself. Yes, Jesus it's not from the line of Levi. We can establish that. But Psalm 110 verse 4 says that he's after the order of Melchizedek. Well, this guy, Melchizedek's starting to be a little bit important, isn't he? Psalm 110 already provided the Jews with all the clues they needed to understand who Jesus was. It gave them all the clues they needed to understand that Jesus is the one true king and high priest of God who will rule and redeem, who will rule and redeem his people from their sins. So let's get into Hebrews uh, chapter 7. We're going to be reading verse 11 and then also verse 27. There's a whole chapter. I thought I don't have time to go through the whole thing, but we're going to have a look at a couple. Verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? In verse 27, he has no need, referring to Jesus, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Our salvation is in the wait here. Because if Jesus cannot be a priest, then he cannot have offered himself up as our sacrifice. If Jesus is not a priest, then we are still in our sins. And Jesus is not true. But Jesus offered himself up as our great high priest on our behalf as a spotless lamb to be punished for our sin and to die for our sins so that we could have access to God. He didn't need someone else to offer him up. He didn't need another priest to be there with him on the cross because he was a priest, not in the Levitical line, but after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus' priesthood belongs to a much older priesthood, a much higher and superior priesthood because Abram, who was the father, you know, the grandfather of Levi, great-grandfather of Levi, he offered tithes to Melchizedek and that immediately should make us realize that Melchizedek is superior to Abram. And if Melchizedek is superior, then Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. And if that's the case, well, 
It's really important. Uh, Jesus' priesthood, it belongs to an older one. And these are priests chosen and established by God himself because it was a divine oath in Psalm 110 that made him a priest. Jesus was selected by God to be this priest. It was a divine oath. God has the right to make anyone a priest just as he established Melchizedek's priesthood. So also can he establish Jesus as a priest without breaking any of his commandments or contradicting his law. Now, that was really complicated. Have you guys, did you guys sort of grasp that? <laughs> Feel free to come talk to me afterwards if you are still uh, worried about it. But there are so many clues that point to Melchizedek being this model of Christ. He's the king of Salem, we remembered, aka Jerusalem, the future city of God. The Bible describes this city as where the throne of David is. His name means the king of righteousness, and we know that there is only one true king of righteousness, and that is Jesus. We know Jesus is the only king who can bring peace between us and God. And one thing I, I don't know where I sit on this one, but he brings bread and wine as a refreshment to the weary souls of Abram and his army. Part of me is just thinking, oh, God deliberately put this in so that we can't miss it. Jesus gave his life, his body broken, the bread that we eat, the wine poured out, the blood spilled to free us from the weary toil of sin and death. Jesus is the greater Melchizedek who receives honor and tithes from all true descendants of Abraham who recognize his rule and reign. Remember, as we're reading the book of Genesis, you guys who have been following along in Genesis, you know we've been looking for the serpent crusher, right? Who's going to defeat the serpent? Who's going to destroy the head of the serpent? Who's going to defeat sin and redeem humanity and restore everything that was lost from the garden? And all throughout the Bible, we're going to get these glimpses of Jesus so that when you read the Bible clearly and you read it knowing who Jesus is, you can't come to any other conclusion other than the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. You can't come to any other conclusion than that. You literally read the, the, the whole Old Testament and you realize this, uh, these are divine words written by the Holy Spirit because no work of man could ever create something like this. Over thousands of years, so many different authors. But we see one other thing. God Most High. And how is he described in this passage? Last thing we'll, we'll touch on. The possessor of heaven and earth. Does that sound familiar? Matthew 28, 18. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's the last clue we see about Jesus, that he is the most high God, that he is the possessor of heaven and earth. If you go and read Psalm 110, it says this, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. When Christ ascended to heaven after his resurrection, he sat at the right hand of the Father and all things, all his enemies are being brought underneath his feet. All things are being subjected to his rule and reign. He's in the process of bringing the whole world underneath his rule, having redeemed the human race. And the church 
is the visible representation of that rule and reign. We are the kingdom that is going forward out into the world. The church, we know from Romans, are all those with the faith of Abraham. The church are all those with the same faith that Abraham has, who believe and trust in God Most High for their salvation and follow Him all their days. And this is what the rule and reign of Christ looks like in this world. It's the church, a kingdom that will never end, as Jesus, the great possessor of heaven and earth, is redeeming all things, bringing all things underneath His rule and reign, And that includes us who bend the knee to him and acknowledge his rule and acknowledge him as king. And he will bring all things underneath his feet. Daniel 7, 18 says this. The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. If you get a chance, read Daniel 7. Beautiful passage. Let's pray. Father, there is so much more to be said about Melchizedek. There is so much more Bible to explore under this theme. And Father, I feel like I've just scratched the surface. Lord, would you give a hunger in these people's hearts to know your word inside and out, to know why these seemingly unimportant passages are actually so important. Lord, we love you. You have rescued us and redeemed us. You are a mighty king. You are our true king of righteousness, our true king of peace, and our great high priest who offered himself as the sacrifice to redeem us, to ransom us, and to purchase us. Lord, without you, we would be lost, still in our sins, struggling. But because of your great love, we can know that we are saved, not by any good deeds on our behalf, Lord, all through you and your sacrifice. And we thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.